Welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times telling you what the papers don't say. My name's Adrian Goldberg. This week, the Pinocchio PM. We hear from the hugely respected and vastly experienced political commentator Peter Oborn, who was hired by Boris Johnson, shared many of his political beliefs and who even regards him in some ways as close to genius. But he also despairs at his dishonesty. If you had said 30 years ago that we will have a prime minister who could be proven to be a, a habitual liar and unscrupulous liar over great matters, uh, you say, well, he can't become prime minister and he couldn't stay prime minister. And what is fascinating, and I think it, it, it's, uh, it really moves the subject away from Mr. Johnson himself to Britain. What is fascinating is that is what we have got, a man who lied his way into power. Peter O'Bourne on Boris Johnson to come. Before that, Rupert Murdoch and his cosy relationship with Johnson and several senior ministers, as revealed by the Byline Times. Before we do that, this is probably the ideal moment to remind you that the Byline Times doesn't have any Murdoch-style media magnet pulling our strings. There are no big corporate backers telling us what to say or print. Instead, we rely on people like you, subscribers to our rather wonderful monthly newspaper, The Byline Times, which costs just £36 a year. You'll find more details on how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com. And if you've already taken out a subscription, thank you. Now, Rupert Murdoch, as we know, has huge global media interests spanning the UK, the US, Australia and beyond. Not content with owning newspapers, radio stations and TV outlets, he's also got a right-wing free market agenda to push to, seen to most dramatic effect with Fox News, which did so much to promote the populism that swept Donald Trump into the White House. In the UK, he owns The Sun, Sunday Times, The Times, Times Radio, Talk Radio and Talk Sport. He also used to own the News of the World, but shut it down in 2011 after it emerged that reporters on the paper had hacked the phones of celebrities, dead British soldiers and even murdered schoolgirl Millie Dowler. Despite that shameful episode, Murdoch, along with former News of the World editor Rebecca Brooks, was still able to secure several meetings last year with the PM and members of the Cabinet. We'll hear in a moment from Byline Times investigative reporter Sam Bright, who discovered that the meetings had taken place. And from Peter Jukes, who co-founded Byline Times, partly as a result of the phone hacking scandal, and whose book, The Fall of the House of Murdoch, explores the media mogul's disreputable history. First, though, Sam talked me through what he'd found out, and his own reaction to it. Yeah, staggering, really. So the government released its new records into the meetings between cabinet ministers and various prominent individuals. And I noticed that Murdoch and Brooks's names kept cropping up over the space of a couple of months in August and September last year. They had seven meetings with senior government ministers, starting with Michael Gove on the 8th of August, then Rishi Sunak, Priti Patel, Rishi Sunak again, Boris Johnson twice, in the space of three days. Interestingly, actually, Boris Johnson's meetings with Murdoch and Brooks were around the time when he was trying to figure out whether to impose a circuit breaker lockdown. Now, we don't know what was discussed at the meetings, but you'd suspect that maybe that was something that was paid attention to. And then it was rounded off these series of meetings between media bigwigs and government ministers with 
Jacob Rees-Mogg on the 25th of September. And it's quite funny that in his log of events, Jacob Rees-Mogg says that his lunch with Murdoch was an informal lunch between friends, and which clearly shows his level of relationship with Murdoch and the right-wing media establishment. But these were meetings which had to be recorded because they were ministers and the prime minister meeting in their official capacity. So they were on our time, as it were. They were being paid by taxpayers to be in these meetings with Rupert Murdoch and Rebecca Brooks. But we aren't allowed to know what was discussed. No, I mean, I wrote a story a few months ago about Rishi Sunak schmoozing with Rebecca Brooks back in April. And as a result, I filed a freedom of information request to try and get the minutes from the meeting. And the Treasury notified me quite quickly that they simply didn't exist. There's no way of knowing what these people talked about, what sort of plans they hatched in the meetings. All we know is that they met. And Peter Jukes, you wrote the book, The Fall of the House of Murdoch. We are here on the Byline Times podcast because the Byline Times was created partly as a reaction to the phone hacking scandal and other misdemeanours of the Murdoch empire. What do you make of this? Well, it's a 51-year-old story, isn't it? Or is it 52? Murdoch first, well, he first arrived in this country in the 50s and he went to Oxford University, but he took over the News of the World, the now defunct News of the World, in 1969. And so we have had... 52 years of what I would say is the first big oligarch of the new era. I mean, we look at oligarchy a lot on byline times, you know, in terms of procurement, in terms of Russian oligarchs, but Murdoch is kind of really the model. Why? Because what he says is, I hate royal, fa- I hate royal families. He says, I'm a meritocrat. I believe in the free market. I don't like government getting interfering in things. Yet he does exactly the opposite. As anybody who's seen the TV series on HBO Succession will know, very much based on the Murdochs, he's trying to create his own dynasty. As anybody who's ever worked with him over regulation, any politician who's crossed his path, he games the free market every single time. You know, he got citizenship through Reagan fast track in order to start off the Fox network. He is constantly badgering Blair and Thatcher about certain things, unions or EU regulations in order to make its business grow. People say, is he a business or or politician? The thing is, he's both. There was a line about these meetings Sam mentions, which when he was taking over the Times in 1981, the Times, the Sunday Times, and it wasn't referred properly to Mergers and Monopolies Commission, John Biffin, who I think was Trade Secretary then, you know, a conservative, said, whenever a newspaper proprietor meets with politicians in private conclave, the public interest is not served. We have no idea of what those meetings were. If it was about this bill they were putting forward, the Conservatives, to potentially break international law, well, we know we live in Murdoch's world there now. He's pushed for Brexit as he pushed for Trump. We live in that world. If it was about the coronavirus, we also know from his talk radio station, people like Dan Wood. They were saying, well, it's rubbish, we shouldn't be locking down. He has a major impact on our policy, and yet he's an American citizen. You're Australian-born. We have no sanctions over him. And it is just an indication since Leveson, when his colleague who attended those meetings 
just before she went to trial, Rebecca Brooks, for multiple indictments over not just phone hacking, bribing public officials and conspiring to pervert the course of justice. She was found innocent of all those charges. But most of her news team at News the World were prosecuted and sentenced. It's described by the prosecution as a criminal enterprise. Rebecca Brooks, everybody thought what she'd do afterwards because she was innocent of knowing about phone hacking, police bribes, and perverting the course of justice, and therefore one of the most incompetent editors in the history of the UK. Because she didn't know what was going on on her watch? On her watch. She was innocent of any crime, but she was completely incompetent over supervising hundreds, thousands of phone hacking cases, dozens of indictments. And... But she goes back there. And there's, you know, what has happened since phone hacking in the 10 years since that came to the fore, Millie Dollar was July 2011, Leveson Inquiry, is they've doubled down. They basically doubled down. And we have two journalists in power, Govan Johnson, who go particularly owes his career to Murdoch, very close to Murdoch. Murdoch introduced him to Trump. He interviews Trump while he's out of government briefly with Murdoch alongside. They are newspaper columnists whose whole career has been funded by newspaper proprietors. And it's no surprise they still hobnob with them against the public interest, I would say. It's no surprise the government gives them backhanders in terms of advertising to keep them going. And another subtext of this, Sam, is that Rupert Murdoch is on the verge of launching a new news channel in the UK. We don't know yet whether it will be the British equivalent of the hard right Fox News that did so much to support Donald Trump in the United States, but many people fear that it will be the British equivalent of that. Oh yeah, deep joy that News UK TV is set to launch in the spring. So this is one of two right-wing broadcasting platforms that are sent to launch in the next few months, and I'd suggest will quite significantly change the broadcasting landscape in the UK. And so News UK TV, which apparently will just be a streaming service, so an online YouTube potentially service to start off with, but it has a full broadcasting license, so we could eventually see it broadcast on Freeview, etc. And that's going to be launching in competition with Andrew Neil's GB News. Andrew Neil, obviously the former BBC presenter who worked under Murdoch as um, editor of the Sunday Times. His platform has been stirring up a lot of controversy over the past few days. And the claim is the mainstream broadcasters are far too liberal and left-wing, allegedly. And despite the fact that they keep platforming individuals from opaquely funded right-wing think tanks and that Nigel Farage has had a permanent seat on Question Time for the past two decades that apparently isn't enough to satisfy their need for conservative thought on our airwaves and so are launching their own setups. This is potentially going to be aided by the government. Boris Johnson is set to appoint Paul Dacre as the chair of Ofcom. Dacre is obviously editor of the Daily Mail and is not in favour of press media regulation in any form, which is quite ironic considering that he would be heading up the broadcasting regulator So it looks like it might be a bit of a free-for-all. And the way to fight back is, of course, to subscribe to Byline Times and Byline TV and help us amplify a bit of reason into the conversation. Yeah, I mean, my concern about this is that if you look at this global view of murder, what we had was a feral press for 30, 40 years, as witnessed by phone hack. But we had a fairly stable broadcast environment. It's kind of the reverse of the US where... 
they had a feral broadcasting environment, but they have a fairly stable press. And we would have the worst of both worlds because we would have the feral press heavily owned by a few rich billionaires and a very unstable broadcast medium. Peter Jukes there. And before that, Sam Bright. And you can read many more great investigations by Sam on the Byline Times website. And if you're interested in hearing more about Murdoch, well, check out my interview with former Aussie Prime Minister Kevin Rudd. If you type Byline Times podcast into your search engine, you'll find every back episode there covering topics as diverse as COVID, Brexit, NHS whistleblowing and much more. My name's Adrian Goldberg, and just a reminder that there is no Murdoch behind the Byline Times. We're funded by the generosity of people like you, our subscribers. For just £36 a year, you can get our fabulous monthly newspaper, the Byline Times. And your subscription also pays for our website, Byline TV, and this podcast. Thank you if you've already subscribed. You can get more details on subscriptions at bylinetimes.com. Now, Peter Oborn is one of Britain's most widely respected political commentators. Conservative-leaning, but always with an independent spirit, is the former chief political commentator for The Telegraph, has written for The Daily Mail and made programmes for Channel 4's dispatches. He's also had a ringside seat for Boris Johnson's rise to power, having been hired as political editor at The Spectator when Johnson edited it. But now Peter has turned on his former boss in spectacular style. His new book, The Assault on Truth, is a polemic against populism and specifically against the Pinocchio PM. I have always, or rather for the last 15 years, I've kept a file of political lies told by leading politicians, particularly prime ministers, but also ministers. I'd done that because 15 years ago, I wrote a book, The Rise of Political Lying, about Tony Blair's government and obviously with the weapons of mass destruction at the heart of it. And thereafter, I kept a file of lies. And all prime ministers do lie a little bit. But, you know, there wasn't anything abnormal. It was much, it was quite a low level and not many. And then Boris Johnson arrived in, I think, July the 24th, 2019. And suddenly I found my file of lies just escalating. It just got huge very, very quickly. And at the same time, he brought Dominic Cummings into number 10 Downing Street, who is amoral and no respect for integrity, along with a number of other people who'd been in the Vote Leave campaign. And suddenly lies were pouring out of Mr. Johnson's own mouth but also out of the dining street machine through a technique of sources which were unidentified. And that's when I started to think, well, hey, what's going on? Nobody should have been entirely surprised that Boris Johnson was not entirely honest, though, should they? Because even before he became a politician, as a journalist, he, he had been outed for his dishonesty. That's exactly right. I mean, famously, the first or second story, you know, early on at the Times newspaper, at his first job in journalism, he was sacked for inventing a quote. And then there was another episode when he was sacked by, from the Tory party front bench for, so the Tory party said, misleading them. So there was a record. And I think I do look back on my own judgment and think, yeah, I should have thought more seriously about Mr. Johnson and lying earlier. 
But that said, it was when he became prime minister that the lies started to pile up. And I did raise during his election campaign the issue of lying. I mean, during his Tory election to be Tory leader, I mean, I didn't back him, for, partly for that reason. Boris Johnson and you were quite close, weren't you? He appointed you, gave you a job at The Spectator. Yeah, he, he had me as political editor of The Spectator or political correspondent, I think we called it. Do you know, it was the most wonderful four years. He was a fantastic editor. He was very, very creative. You never had to explain anything to him. You know, very close to genius, I used to think. And it was a terrific magazine. He brought on great writers. He was a joy to work for. He wasn't there all that much. He was fairly hands-off, but that didn't mean that he didn't imprint himself on what then was a, a sort of liberal internationalist paper. And what kind of person is he? Well, what I knew was extraordinarily engaging to talk to, very intelligent, always very busy, always off onto the the next thing. But he, he stood up for me once or twice. I got into quite serious trouble and he stood up for me. And so I, on the basis of working in for him for four years at The Spectator, I was very loyal to Boris. And there was a sense before his Conservative leadership campaign that he was what we might term a one-nation Tory, that he believed in, in an inclusive society, which I suspect is a form of conservatism that you most closely align with. Was that a fair perception of him at that time? Yes, I'm, I, I think so. I mean, when he was, it wasn't just at The Spectator, which hosted any number of opinions. When he became mayor of London, I think you, it's a very diverse city. Maybe that's the right way of putting it. But so while as, as, as in charge of London, he was you know, encouraged a diverse, great international city. Boris is quite a contradictory character. And he was always an actor in search of a scriptwriter, as almost all politicians are. So what happened then? Because his reign as prime minister and his campaign to become conservative leader was characterised by a much more narrow, nationalistic kind of conservatism. Obviously, he embraced Vote Leave and was a very prominent figure in Vote Leave. Was that, as some people see it, simply a cynical opportunism on his part, even if it seemed to contradict where he was coming from politically previously? I think that the, it was a much more complicated choice than people realise. There always were good arguments for Brexit, still are good arguments for Brexit. There is a free trade argument for Brexit, which I think is the one which Boris convinced himself of. Boris also, because I discussed it with him beforehand in the years running up to 19, 2016, you know, he fully understood that the com relation with Brussels is very complex, even if you left the European, because he was a Brussels correspondent, he understood it. You had to have a very, it was a very major bureaucratic ent enterprise to engage with Europe. He understood all of, all of that. But I do think in retrospect, with hindsight, and this is only my own view, but when I was researching the book, I spoke to certain people who were close to Johnson in one way or another. Their interpretation was that fundamentally Boris was more pro-European than not. 
but that David Cameron made a political error of the first order by before the campaign by not offering Johnson a big, big job at the heart of government afterwards. I think he was, they sort of gave him the offer of defence secretary, something like that. And basically, he was being offered the choice between if Cameron won a middle-ranking cabinet job in a government dominated by his biggest rival, or the leadership of the, you know, potentially prime minister. There was a route to Downing Street. And it's not just Boris who would have been tempted. If you're a politician, your job is to get to number 10. It was a route to number 10. And and vote leave gave him the script. And so he he became part of the vote, vote leave campaign. And that took him probably against his expectations. He won the, won the vote, and then it eventually took him into Downing Street. But as you describe that then, it does seem as though his desire for power, the desire to become prime minister, it was that which ultimately drove his zeal for Brexit. Look, this is pure specu- speculation. Boris could also see the arguments, I mean, he fought for Brexit, but I think he... His sound judgment would have probably come down against, but it's not just, let's just remind you, it's not dishonourable to want to be prime minister. That's what many politicians want to do. They feel themselves as men of destiny. And as it happened, Mr. Johnson, actor in search, in search of a script writer, there was a script and he and he, he took on it, he, he, he alighted upon it. And here was a man who hired you, who you describe in some respects as a genius as a journalist, but who you are also painting to be almost the Pinocchio of politics. <laughs> very much so. Look, there was one reason which was a very, very important story which led to me setting out on the path which led to this book. It was in about August, September last, uh, 2019. It was, do you remember that great confrontation between the uh, Johnson government, the new Johnson government, and there were quite a lot of Tory backbenchers who were arguing for proper procedure on Brexit. They weren't arguing against Brexit, but it was, it was a vicious argument. But people like Dominic Grieve, Hilary Benn, Sir Oliver Letwin, and I know them all slightly, and they're all honourable unusually honourable men. And the front page story, splash story on the Mail on Sunday, said something to the effect that Dining Street was investigating that these people for taking money from Europe, or they were taking money. They, they portrayed them as traitors. And this investigation, they knew about it because of so-called Dining Street sources. So Dining Street was briefing a major paper that these people were, it was being invested, investigated for being traitors to this country. And the story was uh, followed, followed up in several papers the following day. Uh, and it just smelled just something wrong about it. I checked it out. It was a very interesting experience because the cabinet's office, which I rang up, said it had no knowledge of any investigation. And the Dining Street Press Office said there had not been an investigation. But the Mail on Sunday continued to insist that Dining Street sources had told it there had been. Uh, And so there never was an investigation, but people in Dining Street, that's, I don't know exactly who, but Boris Johnson's political team in Dining Street was briefing the papers 
that these people were being investigated for being traitors, which was a straight lie, a fabrication, which Johnson himself, when interviewed, I think, by Nick Robinson, certainly on the Today programme, two days later, he said, yes, there are major questions, there are big questions to investigate here. So he substantiated that lie, cynically put out to smear very honourable British politicians. That's when I actually lost it. I felt after that that... I couldn't believe or support Boris Johnson in government. And since then, have you been disturbed by other things he has said? Oh, gosh, yes. I mean, there's been... um, And I also did feel that the British press should not tolerate this, should not be used as a tool or weapon to put out straight lies as smears. There's been major issues, ethical issues, surrounding the Prime Minister, the crony culture, which Byline Times has brilliantly and bravely exposed concerning PPE, the serious attacks on the civil service because of the the sweep through all the permanent secretaries, because they did represent an integrity, that's the way I read it, which Johnson just didn't want. And the Nolan principles of great principles of accountability, openness, integrity in public life have just been smashed. Now, when I worked for Boris, as when he was editor of The Spectator, we would we would stand up for those principles. We'd go for great battles with Downing Street, Tony Blair's Downing Street, in support of those principles. And so it seemed that, I mean, just being so cynically swept away it was very distressing. And the attacks on institutions, the refusal, you know, attacks on parliament, on the law, rule of law, on judges, all of this was so unconservative. That's the uh, point that the Conservative Party, which is supposed to stand up for the rule of law, you remember there was that awful moment when it actually voted to break it. The union, you know, the cynical treatment of the uh, of the union, and then the barrage of lies. I I went on keeping the the file of lies, and and when they started lying about. COVID, I then decided I wanted to, I felt, a, actually, I didn't want to write it at all. I felt I had a duty to write this book. I find this really interesting, Peter, because clearly you are somebody who is kindly disposed at some level to Boris Johnson, that you've shared a political view of the world with him in the past. You have been a colleague of his, an admirer, possibly even a friend. So, Who has changed? Have you changed? Or has Boris Johnson changed in the time that you have known him? People don't necessarily change. When I researched the book, I discovered all sorts of things which I hadn't known. Now, uh, maybe I hadn't wanted to know them, but Martin Fletcher in Tortoise wrote a fascinating piece about the stories Mr. Johnson, Boris Johnson wrote from uh, Brussels when he was a Brussels correspondent, the series of fabrications. Now, he only wrote that about 18 months ago. Yeah, and I, I thought I had an excuse not for not knowing that, but it was, it was a very relevant, it's a fascinating essay. One essay, you know, the Berlin building is going to be blown to bits. That's the big headquarters of the European uh, Commission in Brussels. It was going to have to be blown to bits for some reason. Italian condoms are going to be made smaller to accommodate smaller manhoods. So that sort of stuff. And they all made the front of the Telegraph 
And I kept on discovering more and more stuff like that. Now, are you saying I was perhaps blind to this? I uh, Maybe I was. Like a lot of people were. Yeah, I suppose it's whether Boris Johnson has actually moved politically or whether because he is clearly an engaging character in person, whether that blinded people like you or, or whether actually there has been some kind of shift in his political philosophy. Well, I do think he's very ambitious, very talented indeed, and um, perfectly reasonably and honourably wanted to get to the top I think he might have taken any route available. It just happened that this is the route which became available. In other words, those were the political forces around when Boris was making his bid for power. Whereas as mayor of London, he was a very much, I should think, a pro-European in outlook because that's what London was or is. Yes, but I suppose at the point at which opportunity met with his ambition and as you say there's no shaming having an ambition to be prime minister it seems to me that you're suggesting he would have pretty much said or done anything in order to become prime minister and that isn't honorable is it I don't, well it's a, it's a nice question if you look back at the history of british politics over the last 250 years quite well respected people prime ministers have behaved pretty audaciously. Men who are regarded as very great figures today. Disraeli is actually the most obvious example, but so is Lloyd George. And they're two of our greatest ever prime ministers were prepared to behave very unscrupulously to get to the top. And that is, I think, within the laws of the game of British politics. I suppose where it stops being a game, though, is where people's lives and livelihoods are at stake. And you can argue that people's livelihoods are at stake with Brexit. And we've already heard complaints since Brexit became a reality that exporters, and we've spoken to them on the Byline Times, are unable to export their products into Europe or in some cases into Northern Ireland. And in the case of COVID, you could argue that the government's mishandling of the crisis has led directly to the deaths of thousands of people. This is where what you might regard as the rules of the game become irrelevant. What really matters is correct actions being taken by people at the right time to improve the lives of, of the citizens of a country. No, I agree with you. I mean, one can point to other examples. I mean, David Cameron got involved in the uh, Libya escapade, which has, must have led to total chaos ever since. And we were all told that Gaddafi was going to commit a massacre in Benghazi. There's very little evidence that he was. Tony Blair, weapons of mass destruction. Now, that is by far and away the most disastrous foreign policy intervention, probably in British history. Not in terms of British lives lost, 179, although we must mourn them, but just in terms of the totally devastating consequences. Certainly, where over 100,000 Iraqis will have died, and Iraq becomes a failed state, and uh, at least the rise of, directly to the rise of ISIS. So, political decisions have dire consequences, or can have. I don't see yet. Although I do, I completely see that jobs are being lost. It eats me because I voted for Brexit. I may well have been wrong, but compared to other adventures, the Vietnam War, 
Sure, but the mishandling of the coronavirus pandemic, would you acknowledge that the government, led by Boris Johnson, has been too slow, has been too reactive, and that their inactivity at times has contributed to the death of many thousands of people? I, I, look, I, I, Britain's, I think, has got pretty well the highest mortality per head in the world. That is awful. And, you know, Mr Johnson missing the first five of the COBRA meetings, which were called the emergency COBRA meetings, which deal with crises. He missed the first five of those. And then we had um, major issues, mistakes, to put it mildly, crime, some would call it, about the failure to protect care homes, then the herd immunity thesis. Certainly Britain is much more of a entrepot maybe you know people try go, go in and out of this country more many more than many other places and so that is one reason why we got it worse but I, I I certainly accept that they have been serious errors and if you compare Johnson to Angela Merkel and the sort of basic honesty pragmatism wisdom of Merkel country not much bigger than Britain and the disproportionate number of deaths in Britain compared to Germany. You look again at Trump, who's calamitous and fabricator on an epic scale. But Johnson is somewhere between those two. Your book is called The Assault on Truth. Boris Johnson is a senior politician whom we can describe without any fear of being sued for libel as a liar. Why do you think he hasn't been hounded out of office? Yeah, this is an interesting question. If you had said 30 years ago that we will have a prime minister who can be proven to be a, a habitual liar and unscrupulous liar over great matters, uh, you say, well, he can't become prime minister and he couldn't stay prime minister. And what is fascinating, and I think it, it, uh, it really moves the subject away from Mr Johnson himself to Britain, what is fascinating is that is what we have got, a man who lied his way into power and has continued to lie once in power. I don't, that's why I tend to think he cannot, in the medium term, survive. Because if you, you can't make decisions on the basis of lying to yourself or to other people, and I think Mr Johnson probably does both, because ultimately... You get caught out one more time, and also you can't just—you can't—you don't reach the, reach the right decisions. You're sort of got the wrong information. You make the wrong decisions, and so there is a—I think it is a mortal problem for this in the medium term for this government. But I also think it's a, a huge problem for British democracy. You're asking voters to vote on the basis of falsehoods. You're taking away their democratic rights. They are told all sorts of things via the BBC and the mainstream press from Corey Central Office in the last general election, which simply weren't true. And I, I think that this will, this will end up discrediting the system, as it has done to a large extent in the United States, and create a very uncertain and, I think, dangerous political situation, and not just political situations, socially morally as well. Peter Oborn, whose book The Assault on Truth is published by Simon & Schuster.
You can also read his diary in the monthly Byline Times print edition. Find out how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com. I'm Adrian Goldberg, and if there's a story you think we should be covering on the Byline Times podcast or in the Byline Times, please get in touch. You can email goldbergradio at gmail.com. That's goldbergradio at gmail.com. Thanks very much indeed for listening. See you next week.